Our passage today is from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 25. It's the parable of the talents. For it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. And then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also he who had the two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here, I have made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also who had the two talents came forward, saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here, I have made two talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He also who had received the one talent came forward saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid. And I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here you have what is yours. But his master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant. You knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers and at my coming, I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has 10 talents. For to everyone who has will more be given and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away and cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing to you, our rock and our redeemer. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear what you have for us this morning. And may we be diligent workers in the land of your kingdom. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, my parents left for a trip once. They were leaving three children behind. Perhaps some of you have done that too. It's a terrifying enterprise for parents, not just for the safety of your children, but for the well-being of your home. Now, my sisters and I, and I was the youngest, so I was probably the terror that would do the most damage. But my sisters and I, we knew as soon as our parents left, that whatever we decided to do for the next couple of days, when they returned, we darn well better have the house just as it was when they left, in order and not in disarray. And so there were all kinds of shenanigans that happened that weekend. I'm not actually going to say them out loud because this is being recorded and televised. It'd be a bad idea. But it was so much fun until Sunday. They were coming back Sunday. And all of a sudden, it became go time. I was tasked with taking care of the yard because that was just where my dad threw me and gave me responsibility. And boy, he would watch me hard. 
I was not allowed to cut corners. I had to use a metal edger. Do any of y'all still have one of those? It's not safe for children to use. It's got a metal blade on the end rather than just some, some weed wire. And I took care of the yard and I made it as immaculate as possible. My sister Ashley was in charge of the bedrooms and the living spaces, vacuuming, putting cushions back where they belong, picking up all the food crumbs from the weekend. And my oldest sister, Scotta, was the general. And she was in charge of the places that you know, had the most toxic materials, the bathrooms and the kitchen. And when my parents returned, it looked as if nothing had happened the entire weekend, right? Because we knew that if my parents left to go on a journey, that we better have the home ready when they return. That may seem a silly little parable in itself, but it is our parable today. The, the context of this passage, this final sermon from Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew, it's really just a different version of the Sermon on the Mount. This time he's on the Mount of Olives. And he's coming to the end of his earthly ministry. And at this time, on the Mount of Olives, he's staring out over the city. And his disciples ask him this question. They say, Master, what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age. And so if you look in your Bible and you have a red letter Bible, you're going to see this is a pretty long sermon that starts in Matthew 24 and carries on into our current passage today. But Jesus does them a favor by declaring to them what the end is going to be. And he starts by telling them the signs that will accompany the end. But then he offers a few parables to try and explain their responsibility in light of the coming of the end of the age. And so he tells them this. He says the temple's going to be destroyed in three days. We know now that he was describing his body and that it'll be raised again. And we know now that he was describing his resurrection from the dead. But that's not how they would have seen it or heard it at that time. You see, when they're standing on the edge of the mountain thinking of the end, about to take part in the triumphal entry into Jerusalem, the city of the king, what they think is going to happen is an enthronement, not a crucifixion. That the kingdom of God would come on earth as it is in heaven. Isn't that how Jesus taught us to pray? Well, why did he? Because the kingdom had not yet come in its fullness, in its consummation. And so he tells them the signs of the end. He says, beware false prophets, specifically false messiahs. There will be increasing numbers of wars and rumors, numbers of wars and rumors of wars. There will be increasing numbers of famines and earthquakes. There will be increasing persecution of the saints, increasing lawlessness and departure from the truth and the reality of God's rules and God's reign. And yet amazingly, he ends that list with the only truly positive thing. And he says this, that there will be an increasing proclamation of the kingdom of God to the ends of the earth. And then the end will come. That some will decide to participate in expanding the kingdom of God to the four corners of the earth. And that's the final prerequisite for the consummation of the kingdom, for the enthronement of the king. 
that truly God's kingdom will be on earth as it is in heaven. That's the background to our parable, isn't it? The end is coming and it should greatly affect the mission and energy of those who are left behind as the master is about to ascend and go on a journey. And so that's why he tells them this parable. That future reality should greatly affect their present motivation and their present circumstances. The king is coming. The king is coming. Prepare his house for him. The kingdom of earth will be as the kingdom of heaven. The king is coming. Get it ready. Of course, there's all these things that will try and prevail against you, but we know that the gates of hell will not prevail against the kingdom of God coming to earth. Brothers, if that doesn't get you a little bit motivated and excited, there's not much that will. We got to wake up. We got to borrow from that future reality and let it invade our present circumstances. And then when we get to the parable and hear about faithful servants and unfaithful servants, we'll kind of understand why there would be some motivation to work diligently. And so this parable is going to tell us three things. It's going to say the master must go away. It's going to say while away, the master will entrust the stewardship of his kingdom to his servants. And then thirdly, that the worthy servants are those who delight in the joy of their master. Okay, so we're going to address this passage in that order. First, the master must go away. If you'd look again at the passage. For it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. And then he went away. Let me offer a word of comfort for this. Not a lot of the parables seem to apply to our present day realities, but this one does. The kingdom of God is inaugurated and Jesus is coming. The kingdom of God is ratified through Christ's death and resurrection and ascension. But there's the kingdom will come in its fullness that's far away. And in between, we often call that the church age or the age of the church. Some call it the kingdom age or the age of the kingdom. But what Jesus is trying to give them a foretaste of is what you experience now. You're in that age where Christ has come, yet Christ will come again, where the kingdom has begun, but the kingdom has not yet come in its fullness and the master's gone away. What a, what a crazy plan. In the upper room discourse, isn't that how the disciples respond? Well, wait, wait, you, what do you mean you're going away? And he says, I'm going away to prepare a place for you. As you remain, prepare a place for me. The master first has to go away. And then God's kingdom will come once the work on earth is done. That's actually the words to a song we sing often in this sanctuary. And so that's why Jesus says, pray thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven to prepare the world for the coming of the master, for the coming of the king. 
like a bride prepares for her wedding day and endures all the details of the work with great diligence and joy so that she might welcome the arrival of her groom. Some of you are probably fathers who have paid for such a venture and you are still indebted because of the enterprise. Why so much treasure and time and energy and resources poured into such a fleeting event? And I think this parable would beg the question, why not then do the same for something that will last forever? This is the reality that our parable is speaking to this morning. Before we get into the actual work of the servants, it's important, brothers, that you recognize that Jesus is trying to portray the end at this point in time to motivate them to prepare this world for that final kingdom that maybe more in our today's uh, time and culture we've ever wanted it to come before. And we play a vital role. We play the final role in bringing the kingdom. So this is the thesis. Make yourself and the sphere of the kingdom you live and labor in ready for the return of the king. I'll say that again. Make yourself and the sphere of the kingdom you live and labor in ready for the return of the king. And so secondly, while the master is away, he entrusts the stewardship of his earthly kingdom to his servants. Okay, look back at the passage. For it will be like a man going on a journey, he's gone away, who calls his servants and entrusts to them his property. That's really the sum of his possessions. It's not just finances and money. It's the sum of his possessions. And to one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability, and then he went away. Jesus Christ has entrusted the care of his earthly kingdom to us. And he wants us to steward, to work, and to invest his gifts of grace until he returns, okay? And so what this means fundamentally is this. The challenge of this parable is not one of ownership. None of these servants own anything for which they are responsible. It's all grace. And that's important because we typically read this and we feel some sympathy for the one talent guy, don't we? Man, he kind of got chipped. He got the bad end of the bargain. But if it's five talents, which was about a hundred years wages, what an incredibly gracious gift. A normal inheritance is about 40 years worth of work. And he's receiving two and a half inheritances to be stewarded. The five talent guy, the, the two talent guy has about 40 years worth of an inheritance. That's a pretty normal inheritance if we leave one behind work for 40 years and give it to our children. What an incredibly gracious gift. And the one talent guy, that's about 20 years worth of work of wages. Would anyone in here say that's not an incredibly gracious gift? If you worked for 20 years and then gave it to someone else and entrusted the stewardship of those things to them, so, so from the outset, it's important so that we understand why there's such a um, opposing reaction to the wicked servant. 
is that the real question of the parable is, will you be a faithful steward of God's grace? Because this master who's going away is incredibly gracious. Not one penny of those talents is earned. It is all a gift given. And brothers, we know that's true for our salvation, but let me say this, that applies to every good and perfect gift. It comes down from the father of heavenly lights. James chapter one tells us that. What will we do as stewards of God's grace? And I think when we frame it that way, it takes on a whole new life. We're gifting a gift received. We're trustees. We're investing a wealthier man's money so that when he calls us to account, we can say, I worked diligently to earn you the return that you deserve. That's our enterprise in this age that we call the already, but the not yet. The master is gone. He will return. How will we steward his grace in the meantime? And so though there are three servants mentioned in the parable, they really just represent two responses. And I'm not going to read it back through. You have the five talent, you have the two talent, you have the one talent. The five and the two both diligently work to double the resources gifted to them. And the one with one talent buries his talent, he hides it. And when the master returns, you have the first two who return with increase to the master and you have the one who returns only what he was given. So the first two take the grace given to them, don't they? And they diligently work, okay? And the reason they do this is because they understand the graciousness of the master. They are not interested in taking what's given to them and expanding their influence and their name. They are interested in taking what's given to them and expanding his influence and his name. They know not what their reward will be for the diligent work they are doing. And therefore, the primary reward of their work is the joy of their master. You tracking with me? The joy of the master is the primary motivation. They don't know what he's going to give them if they're diligent. They want to enter into, to share in his joy. But fundamentally different is the second or the last servant, the second response. The remaining servant is called a wicked servant. He did not work diligently to multiply the master's kingdom. He squandered grace. He abused it. He assumed because he wasn't given as much that the master was cruel and harsh, that the master was greedy and manipulative, and he therefore was personally off the hook for having any responsibility to the master or to his kingdom or his estate. He would prefer hide the resources given to him than invest it for the master's sake. And so the response of the master when he returns to the first two is, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. That's a little? 
100 years worth of wages? Can you see how gracious God is? The master says, I've made you faithful over a little and it's more than you could dream. He's not harsh. He's not hard. He's not manipulative. He's not greedy. He's incredibly generous. But in the economy of the kingdom, what he has given to be stewarded was just enough. And if you're faithful with little, he will make you faithful over much. And then he will say, enter into the joy of your master. That's the motivation. To share in Christ's joy. And why would we want to do that? Because for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. He despised its shame. And then he entered into his joy. And what was his joy? It was the joy of his father. To be seated at his right hand. To say of the kingdom that you gave me, I did your work, Father. Not one sheep was lost that you asked me to gain. And he presented with perfection. Perfect stewardship. Of the kingdom that the father had given him to rule and to reign. He entered into his father's joy. That's the reward for our diligence. It's not notoriety. It's not fame. It's not position. It's not power. It's not influence. It's not accolades. It's the father's joy. It's the master's joy. This master is not asking these servants to do anything that he himself has not already done. And we get invited into this like vice regents, like little Christs in a sense, and be careful how you take them to replicate his work. But the response to the wicked servant is this. You wicked and slothful servant, you knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scattered no seed. He's not admitting that that's true. He's simply calling into question the accusation being brought against him by this slothful servant. If that was true, then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers. And at my coming, I should have at least received interest. So take the talent from the slothful one and give it to the one who has 10. For to everyone who has will more be given and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away and cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. It's not because his works weren't good enough to secure the approval of the master. It's because he squandered the grace of the master and did not know the graciousness of the master. Real simply, it's not only misbelief, it's unbelief. The fruits of his faith was to do nothing. I know you've known someone who's squandered grace before. Maybe you've been someone who did that for a season of your life. Brothers, let me say this. You don't control grace. Grace controls you. 
You don't command grace in what will or won't be acceptable for you, what parts you will or won't taste. Grace compels you. That's why Paul says, I am what I am by the grace of God. And his grace did not prove vain. And then what does he say? No, I labored most diligently. I was a faithful servant. Yet not I, but what? The grace of God within me. Those who abuse grace likely don't know grace at all. Because you don't control grace, grace controls you. And if you know the generosity of the master, you could never imagine being a slothful servant. It compels you to work diligently, even more than all others, yet not you, but the grace of God in you. This slothful servant knew not the master or his grace. And so a most basic question might be, who do you see the master to be? The greater his grace, the harder your work. What a paradox. Doesn't that remind you of Paul's question when he says, shall we sin so that grace may abound? What a dumb question. I'm not saying Paul's dumb. I'm saying the question is dumb. Sin more so that grace may abound? If grace abounds, you sin less. That's the irony of the question. Are you someone who knows the master to be so gracious and are you controlled by grace? The answer to that will determine how you steward it. How might I serve him? So let's answer that question in closing for today as well. Okay, the grace given to you comes in a variety of ways and to each has been given what our parable tells us, a different measure. It says it this way, given to each according to his ability, to his capacity, is what that means. It's a, a peculiar grace to a peculiar person. The adjective that precedes that word for ability points that out. It's a peculiar ability. Okay, and to some he has given five talents worth, hasn't he? We struggle not to be envious of those people. My brother-in-law is one of those. He's brilliant. He has three degrees. He's a test pilot in the Air Force who became a general. He was on the uh, U.S. pentathlon team. I mean, I could just go on and on. You look at guys like that and you're like, could you share a little? Right? But to each has been given a peculiar measure, ability for grace. To some he's given five talents, to some two, to some one. But to all has been entrusted the kingdom of God. And so you're here today and you're like, I'm a one talent guy. It's been entrusted to you. It's a gift of grace. And some of you go, I'm a five talent guy and you're way overestimating yourself. But whatever it is, it's been entrusted to you. Be a good steward of the grace given to you. All play part in stewarding this grace until the kingdom of God covers the earth as the waters cover the sea. And the king returns home and finds it just as it should be. 
So the grace stewarded, I just want to speak briefly about in five buckets, because we so often just think of financial resources. And I think that's just one of the five buckets. So first natural abilities, this is a grace stewarded to you. Okay. Think of these as talents in the sense that we use the word talents today. These are not resources, they're abilities, they're giftedness. And God has gifted each of his servants in peculiar ways. Okay, some have a keen intellect, some have uh, physical strength, some are really good with their hands, some are excellent orators or speakers and can communicate very well. Okay, some are naturally really good with numbers. When you talk about investing, they're the people you want to go to. All these things can be benefits to the kingdom of God. Um, I remember hearing Clayton Kershaw speak to a, a large group of young people. He's been naturally gifted to throw a baseball. I don't know if y'all know who Clayton Kershaw is. I could work my whole life to try and throw a fastball like him, and it's just not going to happen. And he stood up front and told his story about his baseball career and about his giftedness. He talked about all the hard work that went into getting where he was. But at the end, he said this, and I loved it. To the audience of young people, he said, I'm not a baseball player who happens to be a Christian. I am a Christian who happens to be a baseball player because God made me to be a baseball player. I use it as much as possible for his glory. What natural abilities has God given you that might be used to expand his kingdom? Okay, secondly, spiritual gifts. Okay, these are specific gifts given to you in Christ by the Spirit for building up the body of Christ, for building up the church. Uh, there's lists of these in Romans 12 and 1 Corinthians 12 and in Ephesians 4, if you're not familiar with what the spiritual gifts mentioned in Scripture are. And there's also numerous self-administered tests that you can take. If you're curious, you could come to me, Paul Goebel, Matt, for anybody who teaches up here and ask us for a spiritual gifts test, and we'll try to help you. We'll also try not to be skeptical about them. Some are better than others, okay? But the point of it is to discover your spiritual gift, okay? Um, I can't tell you how many Christians I know who, if you asked, would say, I, I have no idea. I have no idea the way in which the Spirit has gifted me through the salvation offered to me. Brothers, work diligently to figure it out and then to use it. You will share in the master's joy. Um, I have a dear friend who has the gift of discernment. It's uncanny, okay? And uh, boy, has he used it for the kingdom of God. There are hundreds of young men who have needed someone to discern what they are feeling and thinking, but not saying and to, like a surgeon, speak the truth into their lives, to cut where they need to be cut, and to sew up what needs to be sewn up. And there's hundreds of young men who have been set free from addiction because he uses his gift of discernment. Isn't that fantastic? I have personally benefited from his friendship in my life as he's used his gift of discernment with me. To each has been given. And Paul's command to us in 1 Corinthians 14 is that you would diligently pursue the spiritual gifts. Do it. The third bucket, opportunities. This is your work, your involvements, your relationships. 
okay? Um, God has given us a wide variety of opportunities, hasn't he? I mean, just think about the occupations that are represented in this crowd alone. Dentist, commercial real estate, artist, business development, marketing, attorney, oil and gas. I mean, I could, and some of you are like, do you really know everybody's occupations? I don't, but I do know some of your occupations. How brilliant that God would employ all of them to be used for his kingdom. Okay. And you guys know this, if you work in the marketplace, that the greatest way to open doors for the kingdom at your work is to do excellent work. The credibility that you earn to be able to live and to speak the gospel in the marketplace has to do with excellent work. And so work diligently in your occupation. That's an opportunity that God has placed at your feet. And it's the one that you happen to spend the most time at. God loves your work. Some of us need to rekindle our love for our work. And to work at it is working for the Lord and not for men. Use it for the kingdom, but that's not it. It's also our involvements and our relationships. Okay, there's a variety of commitments that many of you have made throughout your church, your community, the city, even things that affect the entire world. There's associations that you're a part of. There's boards that you are a member of. There's places where your involvement and your, and your associations can be used to expand the kingdom of God, if that is the end for which you see such a thing. It is possible. Um, I know a guy whose business success has earned him a voice in the political arena. His diligent work in his job has given him a seat at a table that frankly, he doesn't know a whole lot about. But his seat at that table is being used by him to try and influence others for the kingdom of God. Perhaps one of you is like that in this room today. I also know a woman in our church who used her connections in the park cities to begin a ministry to homeless people in our city. And without those connections, there would never have been the funding that would have allowed for her to relationally pursue and know by name dozens, hundreds of homeless people in our city. Her associations were used for the kingdom. I also know a man in our church who has worked diligently at the same company for 40 years. And because he worked so diligently, he's now a senior level exec. And there's not a 20 or 30 something in that business that wouldn't love an hour of time with him. And you know what he does with that hour of time? On a regular basis. He is mentoring and hoping to share the gospel with all these young professionals that work in his company. Use your occupations, use your associations, use your relationships for the kingdom of God. 
Next, material wealth and resources. The same is true for the talents in this story as it is for us. Some of us have more, some of us have less, but all of us are called to steward that grace that's been given. And you know what I found that's common across the one, the two, or the five talent guy in terms of his financial resources and material wealth? All of them struggle to not let money become their master. But this parable is beckoning us to not see it as our money, right? It's not about ownership, it's about stewardship. And so the question isn't, why have I only been given this much? Or why have I been given this much? Because being wealthy can be a burden. The question of the parable is, what are you going to do with it? Because your money is not a treasure, it's a tool for the kingdom of God. And those who have little and those who have much have to battle the temptation to make it a treasure instead of a tool. But brothers, there is a sweet release and an incredible freedom and an unspeakable joy that takes place when you are generous like the master. And so that's the call. It's all a gift of grace. Let's steward it. Um, I know a young adult aged male in our church whose passion for Asia led him to start a pearl business that he then used the finances to build water wells in Bangladesh so that people who don't have potable water could drink water and hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. He did not have a lot of money, but he used what little he had for the kingdom. I know a girl who grew up in our church whose desire for justice led her to start a homemade jewelry business because she wished for women who could be freed from trafficking to have a meaningful job, a place of work, a way to restart life. And they make bracelets and they make necklaces. And I know a very old man in our church, very old, who uses his oil money and no one knows it. He called me and said, Brent, if ever there's a struggling family who can't send their kid on a trip, I wanna pay for it. And over the last 10 to 15 years, thousands of dollars and dozens of families have been blessed and they don't even know he's doing it. He's using his material resources to try and extend the kingdom of God. So how are you stewarding yours? To expand the kingdom of God until Christ returns. And then finally and lastly, our time. Now you can work diligently to try and earn more money, but no matter how hard you work, you cannot increase the amount of time you have. In one sense, it's the most valuable resource we've been given. And so I would ask you, if I stared at your calendar and looked on your phone, or called your assistant and I viewed your calendar. You might say it shows how I use my time, but I would say it shows me what your priorities are. And some people hear that and they think, well, you know what I need to do? I need to spend more time volunteering at the church. And maybe you do, but maybe you don't. Brothers, I can tell you there's, there's some that volunteer at our church on a regular basis and it's not about a response to grace. It's about trying to earn it. They're not happy in their service. They don't share in the master's joy. It's all duty and very little delight. 
And so what I'm going to ask you to do in very short fashion today is not to uh, decide that you're going to give 45 hours to the church or to a parachurch ministry in our city. What I'm going to ask you to do is simply put your calendar in front of the master and say, what do you want me to do? And there will be fathers in this room who he tells to spend more time with his children. There will be grandfathers who he will tell to spend more time with his grandchildren. There will be people who are employed that he says, you need to work harder. You've been lazy. You've been complaining about the work I've given you to do. It's for the kingdom. I'm coming. And there will be others that he would say, you need to rest. Stop working so much. You're finding your joy in what you do and not who I am. Put your calendar in front of him and say, how do you want me to use the time that I could never earn or reproduce? It's a gift from you, a grace. And see what he would say. So I'm going to leave you there, brothers. Natural abilities, spiritual gifts, opportunities, material wealth, and time. The king is coming. How will you steward his grace until that kingdom comes? Let's pray. Father, what an opportunity, what a responsibility to not only receive your incredibly generous grace, but to now get to steward it. That is a purpose, a goal, a mission that exceeds what many of us will leave here today to go do in our hearts and minds. Would you change it? that we might see all of life, every good and perfect thing is a gift from above and that we might prepare a place for you, Lord Jesus, just like you've prepared a place for us. We can only do this with your grace. We can only do it by your grace. May we do it for your grace. I pray in the name of Jesus Christ, amen.